Good evening, Journey. It's great to see you tonight. Uh, I've asked the band to stay on stage for a few minutes as we read Scripture. We're continuing in our series on the death and resurrection of Christ. And we're going to read the Scriptures. And as we read them, you'll notice the high level of relationality that's part of the death and resurrection story of Jesus. And uh, then the band's going to help us by singing a song that reflects that relationality as we look for a principle in the death and resurrection of Christ, that if we participate in it, unleashes the power that is in that resurrection. Let's look at the scriptures. Romans 6, 4, we were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. Romans 6, now if we died with Christ, we believe we will also live with him. And in verse 11, count yourselves alive to God in Christ Jesus. Help, I need somebody. Help, not just anybody. Help, you know I need someone. First, I'd like to apologize for the way I'm dressed. There's a, uh, a real demarcation line between the generations, and it's tucked and untucked. And uh, I try to keep up, but once in a while I get all the way dressed before I remember I should be untucked. 
So I just went with it tonight and thought, well, they'll probably be gracious people. It's, it's Saturday. And uh, actually, my son lives in Beijing, China. We went to see him a few, few months ago, and he said, Dad, let's go down to my Chinese tailor, and I'll have him make you a pair of pants and a shirt. I've never had anybody make me a pair of pants and a shirt before, and I said, sure. So we went down to the Chinese tailor. This gal's measuring me. Then, <laughs> this actually happened. Then she, <laughs> then she patted me here and said, oh, Buddha. Anyway, I've had nowhere to wear these two pieces of clothing since then, and I thought I wanted to email them, at least that I'd wore them, so I thought I was going to wear them tonight, so that's, that's where that comes from. Hey, thanks to the band for uh, playing uh, Beatles' song, Help. The death and resurrection of Christ isn't just about my avoiding eternal death. Neither is it God standing over here observing you and me over there and saying, you know, they're, they're a train wreck if, if I don't do something. I'm just going to send Jesus to earth to die, take their punishment, guilt and death, and then they'll be able to live to, forever. If you look at these scriptures, you see the intricate relationality. If we have been buried with him, we shall live with him. The part of the death and resurrection of Christ is to enable us, to empower us, not just to avoid guilt and death, but to live a new way. To be, a, to be able to function in ways we hadn't been able to function in before. And we want to explore that a little bit tonight. So the goal of the death and resurrection of Christ is to live a new way. Before his death and resurrection, we were powerless. Now, here's the definition of powerlessness. It means that the resources I possess in a particular set of circumstances or in the face of a particular need that is critical to my own well-being, that those resources are inadequate to alter my reality or someone else's reality. I don't have the resources to respond. To have power means that in the circumstances or with the need I face, the resources I have, I am able to generate a desired outcome, altering my reality or altering the reality of someone else. I may find myself powerless regarding my health or my finances or my relationships. The powerlessness may rise from personal, cultural, or structural sources, but regardless, it means that my resources are unable to change reality. We saw it, we saw it uh, just, just a few days ago in the death of Hugo Chavez, a man who stood large on the world stage, a man who was president of a country. But when he got sick, five surgeries and the best doctors that money could buy could not marshal for him the resources for him to avoid death. And in the midst of the powerlessness that is ours, Jesus invites us to participate with him in his death and resurrection. Now, our, our instincts in life, in this fallen world, knowing that we can be hurt, 
damaged by the circumstances and the people around us, our instincts are to gather resources, to pull our resources together, to create a buffer zone between us and all that can happen. Now, there's, a, there's an example. Uh, hang with me on this because it's going to appear at the, at the beginning like there's no personal application. We, we find this in the recent economic world, the world economic collapse. In the midst of the collapse, we began to understand that one of the causes of this economic disaster was that the global banking network was trafficking in something called derivatives. Now, nobody actually knows what derivatives are. Not even the banking community, because I've talked to some of them. It developed such complex financial instruments that it wasn't even sure how they entirely functioned. But one thing was sure, that because of the way derivatives were operating, nobody knew what kind of risk they were taking. Now you'd think in the, in the wake of the millions of people who were damaged in this economic collapse, you would think that a sensible thing would just be to say, let's make the derivative markets more transparent so people know what the risk is. And yet, the leading CEOs of the leading banking industries of the world argued for the maintenance of secrecy around the derivative activities. Now what is that? That's about large organizations gathering resources to buffer themselves in order to protect themselves because transparency might mean exposure. And you and I have the instinct to do that kind of thing on a personal level all the time. Buffer ourselves, gather our resources. But I'd like to suggest to you that the scriptures we read with their high emphasis on the relational aspect of the death and resurrection of Christ are suggesting an alternative. And the alternative looks like this. Identification leads to shared resources, which results in power, which empowers others to change reality. Now, the word identification is, uh, is not an exciting word. So let's unpack that a little bit. Identification is the internal process of deciding what landmarks will determine my identity and loyalties. It results in linking my reality, my capacity, and my potential to another's. It is finding my true north, not in isolation, but in relationship. These scriptures speaking about how we were buried together with Christ so that we might live with Christ and we might live a new way. These scriptures are about us identifying ourselves with the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, identification is a powerful tool in our lives. 
Let me, let me show you how it works. First, I'm 62 years old. My wife is not. But she finds herself in a category of people who are in a season of life where they began to pay more attention to issues about health. So recently she's decided, having identified herself as a member of this group, she's decided to, uh, to enter into two behaviors related to diet. One is to, to quit drinking or at least seriously diminish her intake of diet soda. Now, she loved diet soda, particularly diet Pepsi. So she's, she's reducing her intake of diet soda not because she doesn't like diet soda. The other is she's starting to eat onions. She's never liked onions. And in fact, she'd read an article that onions are good for you, so it appears that she may live longer, although it's possible to be less attractive. <laughs> so <laughs> she'll watch this and <laughs> say, what, what is that? That's the power of identification. Having identified myself as part of this entity, it, it in itself generates behavioral adjustments. Living a new way. We were, uh, we were in Phoenix. In fact, she's down in Phoenix at the moment. And we were in Phoenix uh, last week. And uh, some friends came down to visit us. And we went to a spring training game. And then we take, took them to Organ Stop Pizza. Now, the Organ Stop Pizza sells pizza. But it's called the Organ Stop Pizza in Mesa, Arizona. Because it has the world's largest theater pipe organ. One entire, now this pizza place seats 600 people at two levels. And one entire wall is just all the pipes and paraphernalia that go with the pipe organ. And then about every 30 minutes out of the bowels of this pizza place rises this massive and beautiful pipe organ. And a man plays his pipe organ for about 30 minutes. It's, it's something to see. I mean, the place just rumbles with the power of this pipe organ. Now, it's, uh, it's March in Phoenix. So, in that crowd, I'm young. So, that's a nice feeling. Um, and uh, the pipe organ guy, he takes requests. And so, here the pipe organ rises, and he starts to play, and there's a festive atmosphere. And then whether it was him deciding to play it or whether it was a request, I don't know. But uh, he started playing God Bless America. And by the middle of God Bless America, half the pizza place was standing. And he went right from God Bless America into the national anthem. Now, everybody in the pizza place is standing, but they're not just standing. They're applauding and they're cheering as the, as the song goes on. And when it's done, they keep standing and they keep cheering. I, I'm, I was watching this. I mean, the room was, a, this is a pizza place. The room was electric. But remember, if most of the people in that room were older than me, they had been in Vietnam, the Korean War, some in World War II. 
and their sense of identification in the midst of God Bless America and our national anthem was the kind of event where it was hard not to begin to weep. That's how powerful identification is in our lives. My, uh, my mom's 87 years old, and she's in a nursing home over in Williston, North Dakota, where I grew up. A couple weeks ago, I was preaching up in Rudyard, Montana, and my mom was sick. Now, my mom's one of the finest Christians I've ever known. Now she's nearly blind with macular degeneration. She has a partial colostomy because of a lot of intestinal problems. They changed her medication, and she got sick, and she was in great discomfort. In the midst of the condition she's in, she'll still, with her walker, go down to visit rooms where people are just coming into the nursing home and sit and visit them. She's a fabulous piano player, and they'll help her go down into this big room after breakfast, and she'll sit there for a half hour playing piano, and... uh, There are nurses that come up to me when I come see my mom and tell me that if they've had a bad day or a bad week, they take their break and they go into that room and just listen to my mom play piano and it lifts their spirits. And she knows that God's with her. But you know that there are some times we need God with skin on. And so having finished on a Sunday morning at Rudyard, I hopped in the pickup and I headed across to Williston, not not actually across the street from Rudyard to Williston, North Dakota. I hit a blizzard in Culbertson. And if you've been over to Williston lately, from Culbertson in, you're surrounded by semi-trucks. Now I had other things to do. But I cannot see myself. I cannot define myself without talking about my mom. She's not all of who I am, but she's part of who I am. And that identification makes it simple for me to decide I'm going to drive from Rudyard to Williston and spend two days with my mom. Because that's what identification does. It impacts behavior. And when Jesus is inviting us, not just to rest in the benefit of the death and resurrection of Christ so we can avoid guilt and eternal death, but to so identify with his death and resurrection that it becomes a landmark in my life. And I can't define myself to myself or to anyone else without somewhere speaking of his death and resurrection, then that identification, that landmark, changes how I function. I don't have to just grind out Christian behavior. Much of Christian behavior becomes as natural as breathing because that's who I am. And that's the invitation of these scriptures. Now what does that mean in a practical sense? So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to drop you into a conversation now that Brian Hopkins, our lead pastor, and I were having about two or three weeks ago. We started visiting about 
What enables a church to carry the passion and the presence of Christ? And with it, what enables an individual to carry the passion and the presence of Christ? Now, someone might argue that, well, for a church to carry the passion and presence of Christ, they just simply have to preach the truth. Now, I've been in this business for 40 years. At an administrative level, as a leader of individual local churches, a regional overseer over dozens of churches, and a national executive involved with hundreds of churches. And I've been in dozens and dozens and dozens of churches that every Sunday morning will open the Scripture and preach from the Scripture, but it lies in that church flat and lifeless, and nothing about that church reflects the presence or the passion of Christ. The fault lies not in the Scripture. But there must be a way of coming to the scripture that unleashes this life-changing reality that the scriptures speak of. And so Brian and I were having this discussion. And he said, first, we're going to look at three. He says, first, I think a church that reflects the passion And the presence of Christ must be a church that is involved in this behavior. The behavior Jesus talks about when he said, Inasmuch as ye have done it unto the least of these, my brethren, you have done it unto me. Remember, Jesus was talking to disciples, and he was talking about the end of times and separating the sheep from the goats. And he tells them, he tells them this, When I was hungry, you fed me. When I was thirsty, you gave me drink. When I was a stranger, you took me in. When I was naked, you clothed me. When I was sick, you helped me. When I was in prison, you visited me. And the audience that heard him was confused. They said, but, but Lord, when did we ever see you hungry or thirsty or naked or a stranger? And Jesus said, inasmuch as you have done it to the least of these, my brethren, you have done it to me. That when I am serving the least, the naked, and the stranger, I am serving Christ. God was skin on. Now, right away, that presents a problem for us. And one of the problems is that the typical model of middle-class America, of which I'm part, is orderliness. If you're going to serve those who are hungry and thirsty and naked and in prison, sometimes they're in that condition because their life is messy, and if you get involved in their life, your life gets messy. Now, you're, you're listening to a guy who can park both of his vehicles in the garage. I, I like neatness. 
I, I step back from messiness. But there was not much more outwardly messy than the reading, as you read the, the story of the, the trial and the crucifixion of Jesus Christ and the both moral and physical chaos that appeared on the surface to be going on. Inasmuch as you have done it unto the least of these, you have done it unto me. And that that behavior releases some of the power, the presence, and the passion of Christ. Give me a second one. That's in Matthew 25. This one's in Isaiah 53, 12. That Jesus was willing to be numbered with the transgressors. Now, I'll tell you now that any time I talk about this, there are some Christians who get angry. Jesus is willing to be numbered with the transgressors. Somehow in our mind, we have this model, this idea that, listen, if we're the church of Jesus Christ and we believe the scriptures, then we have a we have to stand for something and we, we want to pr- present a moral order to the world and we want to live a holy life. And the Bible says, come out from among you, them and be ye separate. And we somehow think we can't do that and be numbered with the transgressors. But Jesus himself was called a friend of sinners and friendship doesn't happen at a distance. This, the holiest man who's ever walked the earth, was seen by sinners as their their friend. How did that happen? The Bible says not only was he willing to be numbered with the transgressors, but he became sin for us and took upon himself the form of a man. He identified with us. I don't know how you would need to do it, but I'll tell you how I do it. I remind myself of this truth that I need the mercy of God. That I need it every day. In an audience of this size, it is absolutely certain that there are some of us who are here this morning who in this past week thought or behaved in ways for which we are ashamed. We said things, we did things, we behaved in ways, we perhaps operated in secret in ways that inside we hang our head as we think that we were capable of such behavior. Myself, I had a good week. I tell you, no matter what it is you did, no matter how my week went or how good it was, on this Sunday morning at 11.54, I am now and will always be just as much in need of the mercy of God as you. Nevertheless, And when daily I remind myself 
that it's only the mercy of God that enables me to hang on. It almost automatically causes me to shift to being numbered with the transgressors. See, everybody plays to an audience. Some people play to the audience internally. They play to the audience of their, the opinion of their mother, their father, their husband, their wife, their kids, their parents, some other significant person in their life, some still small voice that constantly haunts them. Very easy for churches to just start playing to the church, singing to the choir. Jesus was willing to be numbered with the transgressors. A friend of sinners. Let's look at one more. Scripture tells us in Romans chapter 9, let each give out of a generous heart, not out of requirement or out of uh, um, pressure, sense of obligation, but out of a generous heart. If gathering resources is the way I protect myself, it's very easy for me to live this way. And as I identify with Christ, this Christ who who John 3.16 tells us, for God so loved the world, you can't love this way. This is love. God so loved the world that he gave. And the closer I get to identifying with the heart of Christ, with the presence of the passion of Christ, the more living generously becomes part of my life. Now, I'm not talking just about money. I'm talking about how we live. Does my life become a tree that others can, can shade themselves from the glaring sun under? Is my life a respite, a safe place, an oasis in this world? I can be that kind of person, that kind of person that gives life when others are around me. We're having a discussion in our family right now about uh, Christmas. And uh, we're, we're kicking around this idea, what if we have three kids, so that's three family units, then my wife and I, what if every year, with under no compunction, every one of our family units just put some money in a pot, $50, $100, $200, whatever it is, And then every year, a family unit comes to Christmas Eve with four needs. A person they know, an organization, whatever. It's four needs. And they explain the needs of these four people or these four organizations or whatever's on their heart. And then they get to pick one, and the rest of the family votes on one, and then we divide the money, and and that family unit that year gets to give that money to that person or that need. That does a couple things. One is just generous living. The second is unity of purpose creates unity of spirit. So it actually draws our own family together as we come together at Christmas Eve with this excitement about who we're going to give something to this year. Now I know that's little. But it's a way of living 
and reminding ourselves of live, to live this way rather than this way. When Jesus came to die and rise again, he came not just to remove the penalty of eternal death. He came to invite us to partner with him in a new way of living. You and I can so live our lives that we do. Under the least of these, my brethren, that we can be numbered with the transgressors, that we can live generously, and how we live changes. Because when we identify ourselves, when we think of who we are, we can't do it without speaking somewhere in the discourse of the death and resurrection of our Savior. Let's put our things aside as we finish up this morning. And Thanks for being so attentive. Could I invite you to bow your heads? Close your eyes. We're not looking around. But there may be some of us here this morning, and we have come yearning for a new way to live. Yearning for a power that has escaped us to function in a new way. And you could, I, you could begin this process of identifying with the death and resurrection of Christ today. You could pray right where you're at with your heads bowed. You could pray something like this. Lord, forgive me. Forgive me for trying to gather all my resources to protect myself. Lord Jesus, come into my heart and be so present with me that when I think about me, I cannot define me apart from the death and resurrection of Christ. Lord, let that identification empower me to live a new way with open hands partnering with Christ you can pray something like that right, right now right where you're at we're just going to wait you go ahead and pray the Lord has spoken to your heart this morning. Talk to him now.
heads are bowed and our eyes are closed and people aren't looking around. But if you're praying right now, if you're inviting the Lord into your heart to help you identify yourself with the death and resurrection of Christ, if you're asking him for the power to live a new way, just to honor Christ, if you've been praying, would you just slip your hand up and put it down and say, I asked the Lord for that this morning. Yeah, up here on my left, all through the left and the right, over here on the, my far right, way, way over on the far right, back here in the middle, on my right and left, over here on my left, way over on the far left. Just on my left here, yeah, about halfway down. Way over here on, on the left, you bet. I see that hand. Way in the back. Father, thank you for your kindness to us. Thank you for this invitation to step into your death and resurrection. To allow it to empower us as we identify ourselves with it and by it. For these who've raised their hands, I pray that you'll rush grace to them, your power in time of need, that you'll begin to evidence yourself in their life and show them the next step in coming to this full sense of identification with what Christ has done. We thank you for your faithfulness to us. In Jesus' name, amen.